from Thomas Taylor, the Platonist, uh, concerning the beautiful. Beauty, for the most part, consists in objects of sight, but it is also received through the ears by the skillful composition of words and the consonant proportions of sounds. For in every species of harmony, beauty is to be found. And if we rise from sense into the regions of soul, we shall there perceive studies and offices, actions and habits, sciences and virtues invested with a much larger portion of beauty. But whether there is above this uh, still higher beauty will appear as we advance in its investigation. What is it then which causes bodies to appear fair to the sight, sounds beautiful to the ear, and science and virtue lovely to the mind? May we not inquire after what manner they all partake of beauty, whether beauty is one of the and the same in all, or whether the beauty of bodies is of one kind and the beauty of souls of another, and again, what are there, what uh, these are if they are two, or what beauty is if perfect, perfectly simpler for one. For some things, uh, as bodies are doubtless beautiful, not uh, from the nature of subjects in which they reside, but rather by some kind of participation, but others again appear to be essentially beautiful of beauties themselves, and such is the nature of virtue. For with respect to the same bodies, they appear beautiful to one person and the reverse of beauty to another as if the essence of body were a thing different from the essence of beauty. In the first place, then, what is that which by its presence causes the beauty of bodies? I'll read the footnote. It is necessary to inform the platonical reader that the beautiful in the present discourse is considered according to its most general acceptation as the same as with the good, though according to a more accurate distinction, as Plotinus himself informs us, the good is considered as the fountain and principle of the beautiful. I think it likewise proper to observe that, as I have endeavored by my paraphrase, to render as much as possible the obscure parts of evidence and to expand those con sentences which uh, are so very much contracted in the original, I shall be sparing of notes, for my design is not to accommodate the sublimest truths to the meanest understanding, as this would be a, a contemptible and useless prostitution but to render them perspicuous to truly liberal philosophic minds. My reasons for adapting this mode of paraphrase may be seen in the preface, preface of my translation 
of our first hymns. Now I continue. Let us reflect what most powerfully attracts the eyes of beholders and seizes the spectator with rapturous delight. Oh, if we can find what this is, we may perhaps use it as a ladder, enabling us to ascend into the region of beauty and survey its immeasurable extent. It is the general opinion that a certain commensuration of parts to each other and to the whole with the addition of color generates that beauty which um, in the object of sight and that uh, in the commensurate uh, and the moderate alone the beauty of everything consists. But from such an opinion the compound only and not the simpler can, can be beautiful the single parts will have no peculiar beauty and will only merit that appellation of conferring to the beauty of the whole. But uh, it is surely necessary that a lovely whole should consist of beautiful parts, for the fair can never rise out of the deformed, but from such a definition it follows that beautiful colors and the light of the sun, since they are simpler and do not receive their beauty from commensuration, must be excluded of the regions of beauty. Besides, how from such an hypothesis can gold be beautiful or the glittering of night and the glorious spectacle of the stars? In like manner, the most simple musical sound would be foreign from beauty, though in a song wholly beautiful. Every note must be beautiful, as necessary to the being of the whole. Again, since the same proportion remaining the same face is to one person beautiful and to another the reverse, it is not necessary to call the beauty of the commensurate one kind of beauty and the commensuration of another kind, and that uh, the commensurate is fair but uh, mean by means of something else. But if, uh, transferring themselves to beautiful studies and fair discourses, they shall assign us the cause of beauty in this, the proportion of measure, what is that which in beautiful science, laws, or disciplines is called commensurate portions, or in which manner can speculations themselves be called mutually commensurate? If it is be said, eh, because of the inherent concord, we reply that there is a certain concord and consent in evil souls, uh, or a conformity of sentiment in believing, as it is said, uh, that temperance is folly and justice generous ignorance. It appears, therefore, that beauty of the soul is every virtue and uh, this species of the beautiful possesses far greater reality than any of the superior we have mentioned. But after what manner in this 
is commensuration to be found, for uh, it is neither like the symmetry in magnitude or in numbers. And since the parts of the soul are many, in what proportion and synthesis, in what temperaments of parts or con concord of speculations does beauty consist? Lastly, of what kind is the beauty of intellect itself uh, abstracted from every corporeal concern and intimately conversing with itself alone? We still therefore repeat the question, what is the beauty of bodies? It is something which uh, at first view presents itself to sense uh, and which the soul familiarly apprehends uh, and eagerly embraces as if it were allied to itself. Uh, but when it meets with uh, the deformed, uh, it hastily starts from the view and retires abhorrent from its discordant nature. For since the soul in its proper state ranks according to the most excellent essence in the order of things, when it perceives any object related to itself, or uh, the mere vestige of a relation, it congratulates itself on the pleasing event and astonished with the striking resemblance enters deep into its essence and by rising, rousing its dormant powers at length, perfectly collect its kindred and allies. I will read the footnote. The Platonic philosophy insists much on the necessity of retiring into ourselves in order to the discovery of truth. And on this account, Socrates, in the first Archibiades, says that the soul entering into herself will contemplate whatever exists and the divinity himself, uh, upon which Proclus those comments with his usual elegance and depth. Uh, of the soul, he says, contracting herself wholly into a union with herself uh, and to the center of universal life and removing the multitude and variety of all various powers, ascends into the highest P, place of speculation, from whence he will survey the nature of things. For if uh, she looks back upon things posterior to her essence, she will perceive nothing but the shadows and resemblances of beings. But if uh, she returns into herself, she will evolve her own essence and the reason she contains. Uh, and at first, indeed, she will at it, as it were, only behold herself, uh, but when, by her knowledge, she penetrates more profoundly in her investigation, she will find intellect seated in her essence and the universal orders of beings. But when she advances into the more interior recesses of herself, uh, and as uh, it were into the sanctuary of the soul, she will and be enabled to contemplate with her eyes closer to corporeal vision the genius of the gods, the genius of the gods, and the unities of beings. For all things reside in us, psychicos, after a manner of after a manner correspondent 
to the nature of the soul. And on this account, we are naturally enabled to know all things by exciting our inherent powers and images of whatever exists. Second. Continue the footnote. There is nothing affords more wonderful speculation than matter, which ranks as the last among the universality of things and has the same relation to being as said to substance. For as in an ascending series of causes, it is necessary to arrive at something which is the first cause of all and to which no perfection is wanting. So in a descending series of subjects, it is equally necessary we should stop at some general subject, the lowest in the order of things, and to which every perfection of being is denied. But let us hear the profound and admirable description which Plotinus gives us of matter, and of which the following is a paraphrase. Since matter, says he, is neither soul, nor intellect, nor life, nor form, nor reason, nor bound, but a certain indefiniteness, nor yet capacity for what can it produce. Since it is foreign for all this, it cannot merit the appellation of being, but is deservedly called non-entity. Nor yet is it non-entity in the manner as motion or station, but it is true non-entity, the mere shadow and imagination of bulk and the desire of subsistence abiding without station of itself invisible and avoiding the desire of him who wishes to perceive its nature. Hence, when no one perceives it, it is then in a manner present, but cannot be viewed by him who strives intently to behold it. Again, in itself, uh, contraries always appear, the small to the great, the less to the more, deficiencies and excesses. So, let me take a note here. So, that uh, it is a phantom neither abiding nor yet uh, a, a, able, able to fly away, capable of no one denomination and possessing no power from intellect, but constituted in the defect and shade of, as it were, of all real being. Hence, too, in each of its vanishing appellations, it eludes our search. For if we think of, of it as something great, it is in the meantime small. If as something more, it becomes less. And the apparent being, which we meet with, with in its image, is no being. And as it were a flying mockery, so that uh, the forms which appear in matter are merely ludicrous shadows 
failing upon shadow, falling upon shadows, as in a mirror where the position of a thing is different from its real situation, and which, uh, though apparently full of forms, uh, possesses nothing real and true, but the things which enter and depart from matter are nothing but imitations of being and semblances flowing about a formless substance, semblance. They appear indeed to affect uh, something in the subject matter, but in reality produce nothing. From their debile and flowing nature being endued with no solid solidity, and no rebounding power. And since matter likewise has no solidity, they penetrate it without division, like images in water, or as if anyone should fill a vacuum with forms. End of footnote. Now, we are... Uh, what is the similitude then between the beauties of sense and the beauty which is divine. For if there be any similitude, the respective objects must be similar. But after what manner are the two beautiful? For uh, it is by participation of species that we call every sensible object beautiful. Thus, since everything void of form is by nature fitted for its reception, as far as it is destitute of reason and form, it is base and separate from the divine reason, the great fountain of forms. And whatever is entirely remote from this immortal source is perfectly safe and deformed. And such is matter. Mm. Interesting. Okay. And such is matter which, uh, by its nature, is ever averse from supervening irradiations of form, whenever therefore form acids, uh, it conciliates uh, in amicable unity the parts which are about to compose a whole. For being itself one, it is not wonderful that the subject of its power should tend to unify as far as the nature of a compound will admit. Hence, uh, beauty is established in multitude when the many is reduced into one, and in this case it communicates itself both to parts uh, and to the whole. But when a particular one composed from similar parts is received, it gives itself to the whole without departing from the sameness and integrity of its nature. Those at one at, one at the same time, it communicates itself to the whole building and in its several parts, and uh, at another time confines itself to a single stone, and then the first participation arises from the operation of art, 
but the second from the formation of nature, and hence body becomes beautiful through the communion supernally proceeding from divinity. But the soul, by her innate power then, which nothing is more powerful in judging its proper concerns when another soul concurs in the decision, acknowledges the beauty of form, and perhaps it known its knowledge in this case arises from its accommodating its internal ray of beauty to form and trusting to this in its judgment in the same manner as a rule is employed in the decision of what is straight but how can that which is inherent in body accord with that which is above body let us reply by asking how the architect pronounces the building beautiful by accommodating the external structure to the fabric of his soul perhaps because the outward building when entirely deprived of uh, the stones uh, is no other than the intrinsic form divided by the external mass of matter but indivisibly existing though appearing in the many when therefore sense beholds the form in bodies at strife with matter binding and vanquishing its contrary nature and sees form gracefully shining forth in other forms it collects together the scattered whole and introduces it to itself and to the indivisible form within and renders it consonant, congruous and friendly to its own intimate form. Thus to the good man virtue shining forth in youth is lovely because consonant to the true virtue which lies deep in the soul. But the simple beauty of color arises when light, which is something incorporeal and reason and form, entering the obscure involutions of matter, irradiates and forms its dark and formless nature. It is on this account that fire surpasses other bodies in beauty, because compared with other elements, it obtains the order of form, for it is more eminent than the rest, and is the most subtle of all, bordering, as it were, on incorporeal nature. Add to that, uh, though impervious itself, it is intimately, intimately received by others, for it imparts heat, but admits no cold. Hence, it is the first nature which is or ornamented with color and is the source of it to others. And on this account, it beams forth exalted like some immaterial form. But when it cannot vanquish its subject as participating by a slender light, it is no longer beautiful because it does not receive the whole form of color.
Again, the music of the voice rouses the harmony latent in the soul and opens her eye to the perception of beauty existing in many the same. But it is the property of the harmony perceived by sense to be measured by numbers, yet not in every proportion of number of voice, but in that alone which is obedient to the production and conquest of its species. And those much of the beauties of sense, which, like images and shadows flowing into matter, adorn with spectacles of beauty its formless being, and strike the respective senses with wonder and delight. But it is now time, leaving every object of sense far behind, to contemplate by a certain ascent a beauty of a much higher order, a beauty not visible to corporeal eye, but alone manifest to the brighter eye of the soul, independent of full corporeal aid. However, since without some previous perception of beauty, it is impossible to express by words the beauties of sense, but we must remain in the state of the blind. So neither can we ever speak of the beauty of offices and sciences and whatever is allied to this, if deprived of their Im intimate possession. Thus we shall never be able to tell of virtuous brightness unless by looking inward we perceive the fair countenance of justice and temperance, and are convinced that neither the evening nor morning star are half so beautiful and bright. But it is requisite to perceive objects of this kind with that eye by which the soul beholds such real beauties. Besides, it is necessary that whoever perceives this species of beauty should be seized with much greater delight and more vehement admiration than any corporeal beauty can excite. I say, own to be excited about true beauty, as admiration and sweet astonishment, desire also and love, and a pleasant trepidation. For all souls, as I may say, are affected in this manner about invisible objects, but those the most who have the strongest propensity to their love, as it likewise happens about corporeal beauty, for all equally perceive beautiful corporeal forms, yet all are not equally excited, but lovers in the greatest degree. But it may be allowable to interrogate those who rise above sense concerning the effects of love in this manner. Of such we inquire, what do you suffer respecting fair studies and beautiful manners, virtuous works, affections and habits, and the beauty of the souls? What do you experience on perceiving yourself lovely within? After what manner are you roused uh, as it were to a bacha bacchanalian fairy, striving to converse with yourselves 
in collecting yourself separate from the impediments of body. For those are true lovers, unraptured. But what is the cause of these wonderful effects? It is neither figure nor color not, nor magnitude, but soul herself fell through temperance and not with the false glass of color and bright with the splendor of virtue herself. And this uh, you experience as often as you turn your eye inward or contemplate the amplitude of another soul, the just manners, the pure temperance, fortitude, uh, venerable by her noble countenance, and modesty and honesty, walking with intrepid step uh, and a tranquil and steady aspect. And what crowns the beauty of them all, constantly receiving the irradiations of a divine intellect. There's a small note here. Instead of perito oti an ikalon, it should doubtless read periton alithinon kalon, which sense is adopted in the paraphrase, in which I wonder Vicinius did not observe. In continue the text. In what respect, then, shall we call this beautiful? For they are such as they appear, nor did ever anyone behold them and not uh, pronounce them realities, but uh, as yet reason desires to know how they cause the loveliness of the soul and what that grace is in every virtue which beams forth to view like light. Are you then willing we should assume the contrary part and consider what in the soul appears deformed? For perhaps it will facilitate our research if we can thus find what is base in the soul and from hence it uh, derives its original. Let us suppose a soul deformed to be one intemperate and exhaust, filled with a multitude of desires, a prey to foolish hopes, uh, and vexed with idle fears through its diminutive and avaricious nature, the subject of envy, employed solely in the thought of what is mortal and low, bound in the fetters of impure delights, living the lie, whatever it may be, peculiar to the passion of body, and so totally immersed in sensuality as to esteem the base, pleasant, and the deformed, beautiful and fair. Amazing. As to esteem the base, pleasant, and the deformed, beautiful and fair. But may we not say that this baseness approaches the soul as an ad adventitious evil under the pretext of adventitious beauty which, uh, with great detriment, renders it impure and pollutes it uh, with much depravity so that it neither possesses true life nor true sense uh, 
but is ensued with uh, a slender life through its mixture of evil and this worn out by the continual depredations of death, no longer perceiving the objects of mental vision, not nor permitted any more to dwell with itself because ever hurried away to things obscure, external and low, hence becoming impure and being of all sides must snatched in the unceasing will of sensible forms. It, it is covered with corporeal stains and wholly given to matter, contracts deeply its nature, loses all its original splendor, and almost changes its own species into that of another, just uh, as the pristine beauty of the most lovely form would be destroyed by its total immersion in mire and clay. But um, the deformity of the first arises from inward filth uh, and of its own contracting, of the second from the accession of some foreign nature. If such a one then desires to recover his former beauty, it is necessary to cleanse the infected parts and those by thorough purgation to resume his original form. Hence, then, if we assert that the soul, by her mixture, confusion, and commerce with body and matter becomes those base, our assertion will, I think, be right. Of the basis of the soul consists uh, in not being pure and sincere, and as the gold is deformed by the adherence of earthly clouds, which are no sooner removed than on a sudden of the gold signs shines forth with its native purity and then becomes beautiful when separated from nature's foreign from its own and when it is content with its own purity of the possession of beauty so the soul when separated from the soul the desires engendered by its too great immersion in body and liberated from the dominion of every perturbation can those and thus only blot out the base stains uh, imbibed from its union with body, and thus becoming alone will doubtless expel all the turbitude contracted from a nature so opposite to its own. Indeed, uh, as the ancient oracle declares, temperance and fortitude, prudence and every virtue are certain purgatives of the soul, and hence the sacred mysteries, prophecy, obscurity, yet with truth, that the soul not purified lies in Tartarus, immersed in filth, since the impure is from his depravity the friend of filth as swine from their solid body delight in mire alone. For what else is true temperance than not to indulge in corporeal delights, but to fly from their connection 
as things which are neither pure nor the offspring of purity. And true fortitude is not to fear death, for death is nothing more than a certain separation of soul from body, and this he will not fear who desires to be alone. Again, magnanimity is the contempt of every mortal concern. It is the wing by which we fly into the regions of intellect. And lastly, prudence is no other than intelligence, declining subordinate objects and directing the eye of the soul to that which is immortal and divine. The soul thus refined becomes form and reason, is altogether incorporeal and intellectual, and wholly participates in that divine nature which is the fountain of loveliness and of whatever is allied to the beautiful and fair. Hence the soul, reduced to intellect, becomes astonishingly beautiful, for as the lampen flame which appears detached from the burning wood enlightens its dark and smoky parts so intellect irradiates and adorns the inferior powers of the soul which uh, without its aid would be buried in gloom and formless matter but intellect and whatever emanates from intellect is not the foreign but the proper ornament of the soul for the being of the soul, when absorbed in intellect, is then alone real and true. It is therefore rightly said that the beauty of good of the soul consists in her similitude to the deity. For uh, from hence flows all her beauty and her allotment of a better being. But the beautiful itself is uh, that which is called beings, and turbitude is of a different nature and participates more of non-entity than being. But perhaps the good and the beautiful are the same and must be investigated by one and the same process, and in like manner the base and the evil. And in the first rank we must place uh, the beautiful and consider it as the same with the good, from uh, which immediately emanates intellect as beautiful. Next to this we must consider the soul receiving its beauty from intellect uh, and every inferior beauty deriving its origin from the forming power of the soul, whether conversion in fair actions and offices of sciences and arts. Lastly, bodies themselves participate of beauty from the soul, which, as something divine and a portion of the beautiful itself, renders whatever it uh, supervenes and subdues beautiful, as far as its natural capacity will admit. Let us, therefore, reascend to the good itself which every soul desires and in which it can alone find perfect repose. For if uh, anyone shall become acquainted with uh, this source of beauty, he will then know what I say and after what manner he is beautiful. Indeed, 
whatever is desirable is a kind of good sent to this desire tends. But they alone pursue true good who rise to intelligible beauty and so far only tend to good itself as far as they lay aside the deformed vestments of matter with which they became connected in the descent. Just as those who penetrate into the holy retreats of sacred mysteries are first purified and then divest themselves of their garments until someone, by such a process, having dismissed everything foreign from the God, by himself alone beholds the solitary principles, the solitary principle of the universe sincere, simple and pure, from which all things depend, and to whose transcendent perfection the eyes of all intelligent natures are directed as a proper cause of being, life uh, and intelligence. With what ardent love, with what strong desire will he who enjoys this this transporting vision be inflamed? while vehemently affecting to become one with the supreme beauty. For those it is ordained that uh, he who does not yet perceive him uh, yet desires him as good, uh, but he who enjoys the vision is enraptured with his beauty and is equally filled with admiration and delight. Hence, such a one is agitated with a salutary astonishment, is affected with the highest and truest love, derides vehement affections and inferior loves, and despises the beauty which he once approved. Such, too, is the condition of those who on perceiving the forms of gods or demons, no longer esteem the fairest of corporeal forms. What then must be the condition of that being who beholds the beautiful itself, in itself, perfectly pure, not confined by any corporeal bond, neither existing in the heavens, nor in the earth, nor in to be imaged by the most lovely form imagination can conceive, since these are all adventitious and mixed, and mere secondary beauties proceeding from the beautiful itself. If then uh, anyone should ever behold that which is the source of munificence to others remaining in itself while while it communicates to all and receiving nothing because possessing an inexhaustible fullness and should so abide in the intuition as to become similar to his nature, what more of beauty can such a one desire? I'm going to repeat that. If then anyone should ever behold that which is the source of munificence of to others, remaining in itself while it communicates to all, and receiving nothing because possessing an inexhaustible fullness, and should so abide 
in the intuition as to become similar to his nature, what more of beauty can such a one desire? For such beauty, sensitivity, supreme in, in dignity and excellence cannot fail of rendering its water is lovely and fair. I'll stop here for the moment. <laughs>